are entering the Freedom Hut. President Trump is at the border as we speak, and he will be addressing the American people once again, telling them just why it is so important that we finally get a wall, we finally get border security, and Trump is winning this fight. We'll get into that and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. We now have an actual humanitarian crisis on the border that only underscores the need to drop the politics and fix our immigration system once and for all. In recent weeks, we've seen a surge of unaccompanied children arrive at the border, brought here into other countries by smugglers and traffickers. The journey is unbelievably dangerous for these kids. The children who are fortunate enough to survive it will be taken care of while they go through the legal process, but in most cases that process will lead to them being sent back home. I've sent a clear message to parents in these countries not to put their kids through this. Oh my gosh, it just sounds so terrible, doesn't it? Sounds so xenophobic for President Obama back in 2014. A humanitarian crisis at the border. Ah, that was then, right? This is now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. I just wanted to have a little trip down memory lane with you so that when we hear in the days and perhaps even weeks ahead, that there is no crisis. Oh, who could ever use the term crisis at the border? Uh, President Obama, 2014? What did he do to deal with that crisis, I would note? Eh, nothing. Oh, and his claim there that most of the most of the children who were coming to the border unaccompanied would be sent back, uh, that was not true. A very large percentage of those children were placed in the United States, stayed in the country. So, and then what happened? Oh, that's right. Then people realized, well, why not just show up as a family unit with children? And now we have the current situation, which, yes, very much is a crisis. But I have, I have good news for you today. Uh, it's not final. Uh, victory is not yet upon us, but... President Trump, I, I watched his uh, press conference down in McAllen, Texas, as it was going on. He's down on the border, way at the southern southern tip of Texas. And he is making the case. He really is. He is doing everything that we could ask him to do in front of the American people. And the good news is that I think President Trump is winning the argument on the border. Now, that does not mean he will get the wall because Democrats don't care. They don't care what the truth is here. They don't care whether Trump is compelling or not. Doesn't matter what the Border Patrol says. Doesn't matter what Immigration and Customs Enforcement says. It does not matter to them. All that matters is that Trump does not get his way that he is not able to deliver on the central promise of his campaign, that he is not able to break through and achieve something that we've been told for the last two years was just not possible. Trump, I think, 
understands that this is all or nothing for his presidency. This is the central fight. This is what we have been waiting for. And I'm glad to see that he is rising to the occasion. One of the aspects of this that Trump has brought into the conversation uh, that other Republicans, I think, unfortunately, had backed away from, were unwilling to go there, he understands that to really win this argument, you have to bring emotion into it. You have to bring the passion that you feel when describing loss, when describing the pain that results from an immigration policy that is not enforced in this country, from, re from reckless lawlessness on the part of authorities at the state and local level with these sanctuary cities, from the Democrats' complicity in massive illegal immigration going on for decades, and to finally show sympathy for the families of people who have lost loved ones because of an illegal driving a car that never should have been in the country in the first place that ran into their daughter at 60 miles an hour when drunk, that murdered somebody, that did terrible things. That counts too. We don't just have to hear about the illegal immigrant who is working on a cure for cancer and you know because that's not that, that's not how you make policy folks you can't pick one and say it's true for everyone and if you're going to do that you've got to be willing to hear the other side of it too republicans have tended to walk away from this oh we don't want to get into that not trump he's saying what about the angel families play clip 6 well you know who has more human pain the parents of people who had children killed by an illegal immigrant that should have never been in the country. You know who has more human pain? The husband that lost the wife or the wife that lost the husband to an illegal immigrant that came in five or six times that shouldn't be here. That's the human pain. How can anyone claim with a straight face that our border is in any meaningful way secure when people can come in and out of the country after being deported five, six, seven times? Look at how many times the man who killed Kate Steinle was deported and came back into the country. He's not some criminal mastermind. He's not a drug cartel kingpin. Probably just walked. And they want to tell us that there's a secure border and that this is a manufactured crisis. That's the talking point du jour for the Democrats. A manufactured crisis. Well, Trump is not going to stand for it. He is taking his case to the American people. And I'm pleased to see that the Democrats are getting nervous about this. I think the Democrats recognize that, yes, as the shutdown continues, we're in the we're soon to be, and if we're not already, the longest government shutdown in history, as the shutdown continues, and the pain for those federal workers piles up, there'll be greater and greater pressure on the administration, but there's a race against time here as well for the Democrats. They can't allow this conversation to continue in public in this way. The web of lies and obfuscations and deceptions that they have built up over many, many years around immigration on the border is being pulled apart in front of the American people. We can see this. Those of us who are willing to see can. 
we understand that all of the arguments they're throwing up against this wall, it doesn't work. It can't be done. It's too expensive. It's inhumane. None of these are good arguments. Not a single one of them is a good argument. And yet, they are so certain, so utterly assured that this should not happen. Why is that? $5 billion. This is a drop in the bucket of the federal budget. This is nothing. Which unfortunately says a lot about how much money we spend, but nonetheless, Trump is making the case. It's beginning to sink in. Pelosi and Schumer and the rest of them, outside of the hyper-liberal precincts that openly advocate for open borders, people are catching on to this. Pelosi and Schumer don't want a secure border. The Democrats don't really want to shut down illegal immigration. They want amnesty and they want future waves for more amnesties. That is what they want. And every policy position they take indicates that. Every time the discussion comes up, it's clear. That is their preferred future for this country, but it's not the preferred future of the American people. I don't think they're going to budge. I don't think they're going to cave. While Trump is winning the argument by any objective measure, Democrats have a lust for power and they will not stand down on this because their 2020 hopes, as far as they're concerned, go up in flames the moment Trump gets funding to extend our already existing border barriers. That's right. Border barriers are such a stupid idea that a bipartisan vote of Congress made it the law of the land in 2006. Borders are, uh, border walls are such a dumb idea that we already have them over hundreds of miles of our southern border. Such a dumb idea, though. We've already been doing it. Their argument is falling apart, but that doesn't mean they're going to back off. And that's why I think that the way this ends, most likely, is with the president using his statutory authority to declare what is, in fact, a national emergency. Play clip four. I have the absolute right to declare a national emergency. The lawyers have so advised me. I'm not prepared to do that yet. But if I have to, I will. I have no doubt about it. I will. I have the absolute right to declare this was passed by Congress. So when you say, was it passed by Congress? It was. Other presidents have used it, some fairly often. I have the absolute right to declare a national emergency. I haven't done it yet. I may do it. If this doesn't work out, probably I will do it. I would almost say definitely. What the president is doing here is going through every step before it is clearly a last resort that he has taken by taking this time to tell the American people just how important it is for us to have a barrier, to go down there, to give his address, to, to make the case without the filter of a couple of favored mainstream media mouthpieces asking him questions or anything else. Just take the case to the American people. He is changing minds on this. He is changing minds on this. And even if the Democrats will not accept that that is happening or don't care that that is happening, it will be clear that he has won on the merits 
and has done everything in his power to convince the Democrats to just give some funding for this. That's all it is. This isn't some huge change in the law. This isn't some constitutional crisis. It is just funding for a straightforward, entirely common sense border security measure. That's it. It's not asking too much. In fact, it's not asking very much at all. Democrats probably won't go along with it anyway. Trump will have to declare a national emergency. The moment he does so, this will go into the courts and this will turn into a fight that will probably be decided by the Supreme Court. Maybe in time for the election, maybe not. Who knows? The judges work at their own pace. But then at least when Trump runs for re-election in 2020 and when people have had two years of the Democrats acting like maniacs on Russia collusion and pushing for socialism and pushing for Bernie Sanders style massive welfare programs that we can't pay for when enough people have seen that for two years and Trump can look his his base and look his voters, look Republicans, and a lot of whom were voting for him with deep skepticism. Look at them and say, I did everything I could. I did everything I could to get that wall built. I took every step as commander in chief, as president that I could to get that wall built. Those voters can look back at him and say, that's right, you did. We're going to keep you in office. And we're going to vote more Republicans into office and we will get that wall. That's how this plays out if the president sticks to what he knows is right here. The Democrats are losing the argument. Doesn't mean the wall is going to, is going to happen with their funding, but they are losing the argument. And that is what is most important. That has long-term ramifications. It has changed. Trump is changing the national conversation around immigration right now. We've got uh, more on this and then some updates on uh, Michael Cohen and all kinds of fantastic stuff coming your way. We're just getting started here in the Freedom Hunt. I will be right back. We have a lot of great things happening. The economy is incredible. We're negotiating and having tremendous success with China. And I find China, frankly, in many ways to be far more honorable than Brian Chuck. And Nancy, I really do. I think that China is actually much easier to deal with than the opposition party. I got to tell you, I, I like when, when Trump trolls Democrats very hard like he just did there. Uh, yeah. Is it is it really fair? I mean, you know, China's in all kinds of ways, you know, nasty and, and dishonest in its dealings with us as well as many other countries. Um, but he's really just poking at Chuck and Nancy for being slimy because they are because they are dishonest because they're huge hypocrites. That's why I started the show out with that Obama clip about how there's a crisis at the border just to show you these people that they don't care what it is. They'll say anything, whatever they have to say for their narrow political needs of the moment is what they will say. They have they have no principle they have to protect. It's just about power where are they in the power spectrum how do they get more of it how do they defend what they have that's it and i was saying that trump is winning the argument part of winning the argument is being willing to poke at the opposition a little bit i i have no problem no qualms with this when trump does it you know when he keeps it within certain bounds 
Uh, you know, he, he talked about the whole temper tantrum issue. Play clip nine. Well, the news uh, incorrectly reported because I said, well, if we go back and everything's peachy dory and you say we'll talk over 30 days, at the end of 30 days, are you going to give us great border security, which includes a wall or a steel barrier? She said, no, I didn't pound on table. I didn't raise my voice. That was a lie. What you should do is give them Pinocchios, because if you ask Mike Pence and you ask Kevin McCarthy, you ask anybody in the room, they will say, because I know if I do that, you're going to report it. But you guys report it anyway because you're fake news. I love it, man. He's calling out Pelosi. He's calling out Schumer. He calls out the fake news. Got to do it. Got to do it. You know, the the uh, Romneyite approach to dealing with the Democrats and the left-wing mainstream media does not work, okay? The the McCain-style approach of trying to cozy up to the mainstream media and hope that maybe they're a little nicer to you does not work. Those of you who very early on, many of you listened to the show, understood this well before I did, what it meant that Trump was a fighter, it wasn't always at all times and in all the right ways, but it was when it counts, this guy can throw down. And that's what he is doing. That's why he's down in Texas. This is why we are having a national conversation about the border, which affects our security, which affects our economy, our politics, our culture, our rule of law, all of it. Healthcare, the border, the economy. That is the the uh, triumvirate, that is the triad of the most important policy issues in the country. Trump is tackling this one because time is running short. And if he doesn't fix it now and the Democrats get back into power, it's all over. And he knows that. I can tell you, I'm, I'm proud of the Trumpster. He's doing some good work here. We got more teams. Stay right there. China. You heard the president many times during the campaign say that Mexico would pay for the wall, right? Yes. Okay. So he just said this morning, quote, I never said this. That's not true. He did. Do you think, Senator, that the president has misled the American people on who will actually pay for this? No, and I don't think that's relevant to the discussion. Of course it's relevant. Respectfully, Senator, of course it's relevant to the discussion. Either you tell the American people the truth about more than five billion dollars or you don't has he misled the american people or has, has he been honest with them poppy i understand your point i, I just don't agree with it I, I just don't think it's relevant to this discussion the, the only real relevant issue to this if you strip away the politics and the personalities and the dislike for each other is can you seal a 1900 mile border without using, in part, a wall or a physical barrier. I don't care what you call it. And I I agree with Kennedy here, Senator John Kennedy, that this is just a distraction. This this whether Mexico, okay, maybe Trump was wrong about whether Mexico is going to pay, but we're talking about should there be a wall? That's what matters. Should there be a wall? How do we secure our border? Uh, You know, Trump was making uh, statements about this on the campaign trail. and, And Trump went into a little additional detail today to say, look, uh, you know, when I said they're going to pay for it, I didn't specify how. He also didn't specify when. So if we really want to get into this semantics game, 
it's not clear how or when Trump said this is going to get paid for. Play 19. When I say Mexico is going to pay for the wall, that's what I said. Mexico is going to pay. I didn't say they're going to write me a check for 20 billion or 10 billion. I was going to write a check. I said they're going to pay for the wall. And if Congress approves this incredible trade bill that we made with Mexico and Canada, by the way, but with Mexico in this case, they're paying for the wall many, many times over. And Dan said, would you do me a favor, say that? And I do say it, but the press sort of refuses to acknowledge it. When I say Mexico is going to pay for the wall, that's what I mean. Mexico's paying for the wall. And I didn't mean, please write me a check. I mean, very simply, they're paying for it in the trade deal. That seems like a, a reasonable explanation of what at least Trump's position now is. You know, this seems like it's, it's important for us all to understand that, you know, that, that this doesn't really matter all that much either. Whether Mexico pays for the wall or we pay for the wall, the point is, should we have a wall? That's what, you know, Chuck Schumer put out a $25 billion border security package a year ago, almost to the day. I mean, it was 12 months ago. Border security package is $25 billion. Now they're saying $5 billion they can too. It's not about the money. They don't want to give Trump the win. They don't want to allow the president to follow through on this promise to his voters and I, I think the biggest issue they have here is if this shows the kind of results that I am very confident because head of Border Patrol, head of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, countless Border Patrol agents. I mean, I'll be talking to them next week. I'll tell you what they say to me. I'm sure they're all going to tell me what they've been telling me here in D.C. If it shows the kind of results, though, that Democrats have been promising would never happen from this, then how can we trust them on any immigration-related issue? Then it will have all been proven all along that they're just just lying. They're lying so much on this. Now, just for a moment of, uh, a little moment of fun here. Jim Acosta, Jimmy Acosta, who has really turned into the closest thing in America to Ron Burgundy. I mean, this guy is the gift that keeps on giving. Um, he he asks the most disrespectful and smarmy questions to the president. He's made this a brand now. He asks questions that are meant to be degrading and undermining and just nasty to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, to Kellyanne Conley, to other people in the administration. This is what this is what he does. This is who he has become, and he embraces it. Right? He is. Um, you know, he, he's a, a bad, a bad reporter and doing very bad things to journalism. Um, but now we look at Acosta's video and I had this thought today. He put out this video of himself down at the border and I thought maybe, just maybe, Jim Acosta is is a false flag operation who is really pro-Trump. And his whole purpose is that he he has infiltrated the mainstream media to make the mainstream media look like a bunch of buffoons. Because if that's the case, he's a genius. Because he's doing an incredible job of it. You get Jimmy Acosta down at the border. And there's a, he's at a place in McAllen, Texas, where Trump is today. He's at a place where there's, there is a, uh, there, are, there are metal uh, slats, right? There are these metal uh, beams sticking out of the ground, and Acosta 
is there pointing at them and, and saying, well, let me, here, here's what he says, play 16. And here are some of the steel slats that the president's been talking about uh, right here. Uh, as you can see, yes, you can see through these slats to the uh, other side of the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, but as we're walking along here, we're not seeing any kind of uh, imminent danger. There are no migrants trying to uh, rush toward this fence uh, here in the McAllen, Texas area. As a matter of fact, there are some other businesses uh, behind me along this highway. There's a gas station, Burger King, and so on. Uh, but no sign of the national emergency that the president has been talking about. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's pretty tranquil down here. <laughs> oh, you can't make this stuff up, folks. So here we have CNN's white, chief White House correspondent. Okay, big fancy reporter, probably making million, two million dollars a year, I'd guess, maybe a little more. And he's down at the border, and and he's at one place in the two thousand mile long border. Now, granted, it's where Trump is today, but he's he's at one one section of the border, and because there isn't an active cartel shootout happening, and he doesn't see. You know, dozens of people making a run for it across the border. One, he's being smug about how it's like there's no real problems here. It's a 2,000 mile long border, buddy. There's a lot of stuff going on in a lot of places. This would be like me doing a live report from the south side of Chicago and standing on a corner in Chicago where, you know, in the south side of Chicago, a lot of people live, go to school, go about their lives. I'm standing in a corner in broad daylight saying, well, you know, I mean, I, I've heard there's a lot of violence and shootings here, but like, haven't seen a shooting in the last two minutes, so. Hard to think of something just more preposterous. But but let me also add to this. It never seemed to occur to Mr. Acosta that, yes, where he was, where there is a barrier, there aren't a lot of illegal crossings going on. Where he was, because there is actually a physical separation between America and Mexico, there's not as much cartel activity. Maybe... Because of the barrier, Jim. Didn't think that one through, did he? What he thought was a, a smug moment of Big J journalism uh, turned out to be something of a, a short advertisement for our barrier. And then he tried to double down with a later tweet and say, well, you know, there's the fence. This, this border doesn't go the whole way. There's only some mesh fence later. Yeah, but you know what? By cutting off some areas of the border... You can more efficiently deploy your resources to protect those areas where you don't yet have a barrier, which means that it is harder to cross even in those areas, right? Well, this is so easy to figure out if, you, if you're willing to think about it, but they don't want to think about this stuff. They just want to demagogue it. And if you have a, you know, the end zone to a football field and you're told you have to run into that end zone, end zone and, and there are two people that are, that are waiting for you in the 10-yard line. They're going to try to stop you. And then I say to you, oh, actually, you know what? We're going to put a wall up that's 10 feet high for half of the end zone. Is it easier or harder for the two people trying to stop you from running in to, to prevent that entry? You know the answer, right? Same, same principle applies to the sections of the wall. And building out those sections to make them more robust, harder to penetrate, it means that there's a, there's a multiplier effect. It means that every aspect of the barrier wall, or rather every aspect of border security, becomes more effective. 
There's less territory that Border Patrol, that the drones, that the sensors, all the other stuff they talk about, there's less territory they have to cover. That means it's going to be better everywhere, right? This is why this their argument is garbage. Their argument is not honest. It's not real. And they're starting to get a little terrified that if people just pay attention long enough, they're going to figure this out. People who enter the United States without our permission are illegal aliens, and illegal aliens should not be treated the same as people who entered the U.S. legally. I voted uh, numerous times when I was a senator to spend money to build a barrier to try to prevent illegal immigrants from coming in. Those who enter our country illegally and those who employ them disrespect the rule of law. And because we live in an age where terrorists are challenging our borders, we cannot allow people to pour into the U.S. undetected, undocumented, and unchecked. All of us agree that we need to have comprehensive bipartisan immigration reform. That can only begin strong border control. We must have that. We must control our borders. Wait, that sounds so mean and so racist. How could the Democrats say all that stuff? I'm so confused. I thought... I thought that if you were a kind person, you just wanted immigrants of all kinds, legal and illegal. Illegal is even better because they're probably even in tougher circumstances, right? That, that's what we've been told all this time. That's what they were saying. And now this is what they are saying. Play clip three. President Trump must stop holding the American people hostage, must stop manufacturing a crisis really, I believe, is a manufactured crisis. With the administration calling the situation at the southern border a crisis. Well, that is debatable at best. I've got to say, how stupid are Americans who still believe there's a crisis on the southern border? I I don't know how anyone watches Joe Scarborough. I really don't. I don't know what they think they get from it, what they think they learn from it. I just, as an aside, Um, but now they're saying it's a manufactured crisis. It used to be we all agreed that it was bad what was going on at the border, but now we're being told that this is all, I don't know, it's all being made up. It's, it's just not true. Um, and, you know, what you, what you find from this whole situation, what you figure out from this whole situation is that the Democrats don't really care about the downside. They don't really care about what it means to have a border that is not secure. And, you know, let, let's keep in mind, the idea of a secure border is not a fantasy. Our northern border is pretty secure, right? And, and it's longer than our southern border, right? I mean, our, our northern border isn't a place where we have to worry. You don't have the, the drugs coming across. You don't have the millions and millions of illegals streaming in, right? So it, it, it's not some fantasy. We don't have to accept a world in which we have this porous border with all this bad stuff happening. Other countries don't have this. Other countries would not accept this. So why should we? Why should we be okay with the status quo, which has been going on for decades, and which Republicans, unfortunately, bear a lot of responsibility for as well, not as much as the Democrats. But what they've, what the Republicans have been doing is bowing to the needs of the the Chamber of Commerce and the big business owners and a lot of the donor class by saying, okay, so we'll just... You know, we like that you can pay these illegals even less. I get it. It's good for profits, good for business. So they just sort of go with it. 
They just have been going along with it, and now it's finally too much. But it's hard to hear this debate and not feel like, ultimately, Democrats don't care that much about the crime that happens because of our poorest border. They say things like immigrants commit fewer crimes than, you know, native-born Americans. They, They say that. And then there's all kinds of back and forth over whether those statistics are even true and whether they uh, are cherry picking, you know, certain stats over others because illegal immigrants do commit crimes certainly more than legal immigrants do. And it does not stand to reason that the illegal immigrant population commits fewer crimes than all all Americans. That just that just doesn't doesn't add up, doesn't make sense. As I've said, you look at the just go go right now on the website of you know, the uh, L.A. County 10 Most Wanted. And tell me if you think that it's... Now, granted, a lot a lot of the names you see, maybe they're citizens. I, I, I can't tell you. I don't know. But a lot of them aren't. A lot of them aren't. Um, but back to... Oh, by the way, the, the Democrats, whether they care or not, Trump is making this point. I think it's a very important one that the crime that happens at the border is just... It's irrelevant to Democrats. They They seem to have no interest in talking about this or dealing with this. In fact, they would rather pretend that there's no problem at all, that there's nothing really to be worried about at our southern border. Uh, Play clip five. There is no reason why we can't come to a deal. But you have another side that doesn't care about border security. The Democrats, which I've been saying all along, they don't give a damn about crime. They don't care about crime. They don't care about gang members coming in and stabbing people and cutting people up. They don't care about crime. And if they're not going to care about crime, then I agree. They shouldn't do anything at the border. But I care about crime. And I care about drugs. We're spending a fortune on trying to stop drugs. And they pour in through the border. But I see it more now than ever before. The Democrats don't care about the border and they don't care about crime. It's true. You know, did you ever hear Bush... Did you ever hear a Republican before uh, before Trump came along who would say it in that way, with that kind of, of clarity and conviction? What he's saying is just true. This doesn't really matter to Democrats. Whenever they talk about border security, you know what always comes up? Very, you'll hear Democrat politicians do this. They'll say, oh, well, yeah, we want more border security. We need more judges. Oh, okay, they just want more people to process the waving in of illegals and finding and with with their ACLU and and other you know activist organization lawyers that are provided to to these uh, to these immigrants as much as they can and and tell them yeah that's right you get to stay that's what they want they just want a more streamlined process for accepting people to come into the country and we're going to see how this all works out. As the president mentioned today, there's another caravan in Honduras. This problem's not going away. It's not a crisis. We've got whole caravans of people showing up to enter the country illegally. I think that's a crisis. I think the Democrats know it's a crisis too, but they won't admit it. Man, it must be exhausting to be one of these snowflake libs who gets so upset over the smallest thing all the time and just wants to have sit-ins and require safe spaces, you know, maybe they just need some delicious coffee. I've got an idea, Libs. Why don't you try the best coffee out there? Might put you in a better mood. Black Rifle Coffee. See, my conservative brothers and sisters on Team Buck, we're already all about Black Rifle Coffee. 
I know if you try this coffee, if you haven't already, you are going to love it. Black Rifle Coffee gives back money to veteran and first responder causes. And this is a company that is founded by members of the special operations community. So they're all about patriotism, freedom, and oh, that's right, some delicious roast-to-order coffee delivered right to your door. Check it out for yourself. I'm a member of the coffee club. You should join too. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Receive 15% off your order. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. Blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. They've been taken over by a group that's so far left. I really don't think they care about crime. That don't care about gangs. They don't care about human trafficking and drugs. They don't care about anything. I'll tell you what, they have gone crazy. They have gone crazy. You know, Trump is making a, a broad point here that, that I try to make on this show on a regular basis. I mean, the left has radicalized. If you go back... And look at where the Democratic Party was even 20 years ago and where they are today. It's it's almost unrecognizable in many ways. I mean, the only similarities are that they were still very favorable toward, you know, labor and they're still identity politics. But on the actual positions that they were fighting for, uh, you would be hard pressed to find anybody that could have told you even 10 years ago that we would be now where we are i mean look, just look at the look at the major policy fights going on in this country right now I mean, if we just break them down one by one uh, on let's start at the top on immigration i have been making the case to you and i really do believe it that the democrat party is now in favor of illegal immigration in clearly in favor of mass amnesty and no longer cares about the laws when it comes to immigration, just just want, wants a state of continued law-breaking and lawlessness when it comes to immigration because they've decided that it benefits their political power. That's a big shift. The New York Times is writing editorials back in the late 90s, early 2000s about how Illegal immigration was a big problem. In the early 2000s, Democrats would say, Obama would say illegal immigration was a problem. I mean, they would say it, they didn't mean it. Because the country's not with them yet, and they know it. They figure the country will be with them when they've made 20 million illegals, you know, new new Americans. Because let's also be clear, with amnesty will come voting rights. Does anybody really believe for one second that the Democrats will accept drawing a line at, at citizenship and voting rights for a constituency that will be at least, at least, you know, 12 million, whatever they say officially, I say 20 million strong. Of course not. They'll do everything they can. I mean, there'll be an endless array of lawsuits and you'll get these activist judges that'll say, oh, well, you know, they, under this interpretation or that interpretation and, you know, whatever, some kind of hocus pocus. Yeah, you know, the, the, the new amnesty crowd, they all get to vote now. They get to vote. They'll certainly be allowed to vote in, you know, local elections. And and from there, obviously, they'll just expand their, their power base even more. Uh, so on, on immigration, they're extremists. On abortion, they've always been extremists. So we can just put that in this list. But that that they haven't changed really on abortion. 
They, they've been in favor of abortion at all, uh, all nine months of a pregnancy for any reason or no reason. So they, they have, they've been consistent on that, demonic as it is, they've been consistent. Um, on health care, we're now talking about single payer. They weren't pushing for single. You know, Obama wouldn't go for single payer because that was too extreme, as we were told at the time. But that's probably why he lied a whole bunch about it. Remember this? Play clip 20. If you have your plan and you like it and you like your doctor, that you don't have to change plans. The government is not going to make you change plans. You're going to have a plan that lowers premiums by $2,500. If you like your insurance plan, you will keep it. No one will be able to take that away from you. We will start by reducing premiums by as much as $2,500 per family. You can keep your choice of doctor, keep your plan. Says you can keep your plan. Turns out you can't keep your plan, but, and he knew that you couldn't keep your plan. Now we get lectured, of course, on the need for truth in politics, but Obama, on the single signature issue of his administration, that, that was an essential lie to sell it. That was, that was not just... Uh, something that came up and he got a little caught up in the moment. That was a repeated intentional lie to fool the American electorate so that there would not be pressure on Congress against Obamacare, right? There would not be Democrats who defected and Nancy Pelosi could with a Chanel gloved fist ram through Obamacare. Um, But now they're talking about uh, Medicare for all, effectively a form of, of single payer which used to be considered extreme, now it's not extreme, on transgender issues. This is one of the ones where they're the most diluted. You know, now a man and a woman are not, you can't say they're different. We all have to pretend that men and women are, no, are not different because Democrats refuse to accept basic biology now. The, the progressive ideology that animates the Democratic Party says that there is no such thing as a real biological distinction between men and women that is uh, worthy of being reflected in policy. You know, I, I keep seeing this now more and more in restaurants. And, and I, I don't really blame the restaurants either because I just think they don't want to get sued. They don't want any problems. But I keep seeing, you know, gender-neutral restrooms. You know, or all-genders-welcome restrooms. This is the direction we're going. Oh, we were told under the Obama administration that, we, that that's, that's a... A slippery slope that will never go down. All the slippery slopes that the that conservatives have been trying to stand athwart history and say stop to progressives, right? All of those have in fact been slippery. We are getting closer and closer to the progressive dystopia that they said we would never. And it's really it's really a, a combination of of uh, statism, socialism. That's where we're heading with all of this. You know, the destruction of of God and and religion, the replacement of that with the state, with the government apparatus. This is happening. It's happening in this country right now. And you see it, yes, through the border debate, but through all of the different policy debates we're having right now. Now they're straight up saying, yeah, we want a top marginal tax rate of 70%. There was a time when we were just arguing about whether it should be 35 or 39 or 20 or 25. Now they're saying, yeah, Maybe 70%. I know not all of them are saying this because they want to keep their jobs, but this is being brought up and it's being treated seriously. And there are people who are trying to find ways to intellectually give cover to this. I find that very troubling. Um, 
But Trump is right that they that they're crazy. You know, just because they're the other party in this country, and this is this is an unsettling thought. I, I don't I don't know what else to say. Just because they're the other political party in this country doesn't mean that their ideas have some inherent validity. Just look at the history of Europe in the 20th century. You know, there were some political parties that were for you know, economic prosperity and rule of law and you know, maybe make the schools a little better, a little more industrial manufacturing based stuff, you know, whatever. And there are other political parties that were like, no, we're going to be communists. We're going to be national socialists. Just because there was a communist party in X or, or Y country in, in Europe, did it mean that the communists' ideas were valid? That what they were pushing for should be treated as though it's in, it, it, it has at least some degree of seriousness and, and sincerity? Or maybe it has sincerity, but some degree of seriousness, that this is something that people should consider doing? I think the answer is quite obviously no. Democrats have lost it um, on a lot of these issues. Uh, climate change is another one. I actually, I, I just can't, I can't engage anymore with uh, these, you know, on on my Hill show. I, you got these climate change scientists, they come on, they're all, oh, you know, we're, it's so terrible, we're all going to die. And I say, well, you know, how? And what are we going to do about this? How, how is this even useful? You're not right. I know you're not right. We're going to find out in five years that this set of projections, just like the five years before that, and the five years before that, your projections are wrong. Oh, what a shock. But you know, I'm supposed to, you know, I, I'm not a, an amateur scientist. I am something of an amateur historian, I guess. I try to pay attention to history, and I know these people are not telling me the truth. But the truth doesn't really matter. Just as we were discussing yesterday with the intentional suppression of facts in favor of a narrative that scientists are supposed to support— so scientific inquiry should actively be stifled, according to scientists now, not all of them, but some of them, in favor of a more righteous scientific narrative, right? A, a bigger goal, climate change being the most obvious one. Uh, this is out in the open now. This is what they're saying. So uh, I do find it troubling. But I think Trump is right. They, they, are, uh, they have turned into a bunch of wackos, a bunch of wackos. And it's getting harder and harder to find common ground with them. And they're also just responding more and more with spite and viciousness to us. You say it's not a shakeup, but you guys are down. And it makes Says sense who? that there would... Says who? Most of them. All of them? Says who? Polls. I just told you. I answered your question. Okay. Which polls? All of them. Okay. And your okay. question is? Okay, so my question is... <laughs> okay, I don't so that's, think is really that's one of my favorite exchanges from the 2016 election. It was a CNN anchor and, and now disgraced and disbarred attorney uh, Michael Cohen. I think he's already disbarred. If he hasn't been, he, he's about to be. Uh, Cohen's back in the news. Cohen's back in the news because he will testify publicly to the House Oversight Committee before he enters prison. That is the latest. He's going to go to prison in March for a three-year-long uh, term. And this is going to result in a, a whole rehash of the facilitating of the payments to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Um 
he also lied to Congress because of um, Trump's in, or relating to Trump's involvement in the Moscow Trump Tower situation. So Cohen's going to go and and he's going to be uh, answering all kinds of questions. And look, he he is going. All of the incentives for him are to trash the president. All of the incentives for him are to trash President Trump. There is no question about it that he benefits the more you know lurid details, the more damaging, nasty, destructive stuff um, that he can come up with about the president, the better. Okay, so start with that. You know, he very clearly is going to uh, feel like he should just do everything everything possible to just make himself less hated by the establishment, the left, the media, because, uh, you know, he's a guy who has been he's been really put through it. I mean, he went from thinking that he had essentially won the lottery by being the personal attorney to the most, in many ways, improbable presidential victor in the history of this country to being a guy who's now heading to prison uh, and and has been professionally ruined. But uh, you're going to have this is going to be really the the opening salvo, I think, of the Democrat extravaganza of show trials that will occur on the House floor. You know, you're going to have a lot of hearings and grandstanding and this and it's just going to turn into an anti-Trump circus. And uh, this is what we're expecting. I mean, we're expecting that Cohen is going to show up and he's going to tell them that, you know, Trump directed him to make the illegal payments. They're going to say, oh, that's illegal. See, this is why I've known all along. Of course, it's all heading to impeachment. Of course, it's all heading to impeachment. You think they're going to get this guy, Cohen, to stand in front of Congress and say, yes, I was directed. Remember, he's a lawyer. He was directed to do illegal stuff and he just did it. Yes, uh, Trump directed me to make the illegal payments. Yes, we were involved with um, trying to subvert campaign finance law. Yes, I paid these women and you know Trump's lying about that too. And with all this, you think they're they're not going to then have a the, the Congress, the Democrat controlled house isn't going to file articles of impeachment. Of course they are. Look at the bench that they have running in 2020. Beto O'Rourke, like some kind of lunatic did a video today of him getting his teeth cleaned and interviewing some woman who's cleaning his teeth about her life as a migrant or something. But the whole thing was just, it was just weird, man. I mean, it's just strange that they think this, that that Beto is, is so charming. Look, Beto's a guy who married a billionaire and now he wants to be powerful and relevant. Guy's just deeply unimpressive. He married somebody super rich. Now he wants to be a politician. I'm, I'm supposed to bow and genuflect over this, you know, Man, I, I wish we would all just feel more comfortable speaking truthfully about people that aren't impressive but have managed to position themselves in the elite echelons of our society. You know, people, oh, I, you know, they, they have this or that credential or they're this or that thing. And you say to yourself, do they earn it? Is it from merit? Is their place in society based upon some degree of competence or is it just they know the right people or were born in the right family. And yes, I know Trump, Bush, there are plenty of people that benefited tremendously from where they came from. But, you know, say what you will about Trump. The guy won an election that nobody thought he could win. And there are plenty of billionaires. You know, Michael Bloomberg's not going to win the next election. All right. 
So there are plenty of people that would never be able to pull off what Trump did. So let's give credit where it's due. But so they're going to come out with this Cohen thing and and they're going to push for all kinds of, you know, news stories and coverage over this. And, And then it's going to turn to obstruction. You see, what we have here is a a media and Democrat and unfortunately much of the legal apparatus in this country contorting itself to try to find ways to bring some charge against the president of the United States for criminal activity. They're just looking for something that they can come up with, right? You know, the old thing about how a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. This is that mentality, except it's directed at the president of the United States. Find something to get him on. And we're going to return to obstruction. We're going to be hearing a lot about obstruction. I think, uh, when is he set to testify here? Just so I'm, I'm right on my on my dates. Well, it has to be soon. He's going to prison February 7th. So it's going to be the next couple of weeks he's going to testify. I think the documents are due on January 22nd. Um, so I think that means that, you know, here we are. We're going to see him in the next couple of weeks. And this is just all going to be more bash Trump, get Trump nonsense in the media. You know, me- meanwhile, I think the president is, as I've been saying, doing a really good job on this, on the border issue. I think that he's making the case, the American people, and he's gone a lot further than anybody else did. As an aside here, Bush was, oh, it is February. Oh, it's February 7th that he's going to testify, Producer Mike. Okay. I thought that's when he was going to. Prison. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, sorry. February 7th is the, According to the New York Times. Session. Thank you. Thank you. That's why Producer Mike's got my back. It's got Overwatch. Uh, so yeah, February 7th. So it's a few weeks out. Oh, there's going to be so much speculation. There's going to be a whole mini industry in the media of speculating on just what Cohen's going to say. Oh, man. It's uh, it's pretty remarkable. It really is. They're, they're just, they're so frenzied in their hatred of Donald Trump. They'll do anything they can to take this guy down. And I, I, get, I just give Trump so much credit for being willing to just stick it out. I mean, I, I can't imagine. He could be just flying around the world with his gorgeous wife and his beautiful family and you know, playing golf, hanging out, doing TV. He didn't have to do this. He's not like the Clintons. This wasn't his path to riches. But he's staying in it. And hopefully for all of us, he managed to stick it out to the very end. Six more years. You think you can change the country? You should look to her generation. They're taking to the streets. Protests are important, but changing the culture means nothing if the law doesn't change. What did you say your name was? Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I want to be a lawyer. I want to represent clients in pursuit of justice. So they're going to give you a corner office? I wasn't what they were looking for. One said women are too emotional to be lawyers. Another told me a woman graduating top of her class must be a real ball buster. That's from the new trailer for a movie that I'm going to tell you not to go see that is about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the basis of sex, it is called. This is another one of these movies that Hollywood will make and Hollywood will congratulate itself for and very few people will see and those who do see it, if they're being honest, will probably say it was quite boring. Um, I would also note that they did not particularly go for a uh, a close likeness to Miss Bader Ginsburg, but that's neither here nor there. Um, the reason that they've made this movie at this time 
And it comes on the heels of CNN putting out a documentary, the notorious RBG. I mean, they are are actively promoting a cult of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This is happening. This is a real thing that is going on now. And the reason is because they are gearing up, I think, for what none of them want to admit is coming, but is increasingly looking like it's going to happen. And that is another Supreme Court vacancy. Another Supreme Court vacancy to be filled by President Donald Trump. And we already know who I think the most likely candidate is to uh, fill that seat. It would be Amy Coney Barrett. But let, let me just step back for a moment. Here is a story from Politico, which tends to have some pretty good sources here in town, even though it's, a, it's, it's liberal, but they, they do break some stuff. Trump White House urging allies to prepare for possible RBG departure. The piece goes on. The White House is reaching out to political allies and conservative activist groups to prepare for an ailing Ruth Bader Ginsburg's possible death or departure from the Supreme Court, an event that would trigger the second bitter confirmation battle of Donald Trump's tenure. The outreach began after Ginsburg, 85, on Monday, missed oral arguments at the court for the first time in her 25 years on the bench. The justice, who was nominated to the court by President Bill Clinton in 1993, announced in late December that she underwent a surgical procedure to remove two cancerous growths from her lungs. Folks, the woman is the woman is 85 years old. She's having cancerous growths removed from her lungs. I mean, this is obviously very difficult, very serious stuff. And, you know, it's it's strange because really only in the Supreme Court do we have this dynamic where it's almost like dealing with medieval royalty, where they only stop in some cases when they stop, you know, when, when they uh, expire, when they pass away. This is not something you have in any other office where people are actually waiting around saying, is this person going to be around for the next few years? Because if not, there are major political ramifications to that, right? You know, you know, people usually, look, I know there have been some older presidents, Reagan was older, and uh, but people usually are not thinking that an office holder of any kind, a major politician is going to uh, stay in that role until old age takes them. And I think that it's symptomatic of just how overly focused and how far too powerful the Supreme Court, how overly focused we are on it and how this and how the whole battle around the Supreme Court is way out of proportion to what it's supposed to be because the court became in the 20th century a tool of liberal super legislation, essentially an end run on the congressional the congressional authorization to write statutes, to write laws. Now you've got the Supreme Court for the last, you know, 50 or so years writing laws. Uh, well, even longer than that. So I would just note that, uh, you know, this is this this creating of a Ginsburg cult 
is meant to to prepare the prepare the battlefield for what's going to come. I don't know how liberals are going to be able to handle this. There is not a single person that I can think of. To, I mean, there's not. I'm trying to think of how far back you'd have to go. I, I don't think there's anybody alive right now who could say that they have any memory of a of a strong conservative majority on the Supreme Court. And that's a forever thing for a lot of people now, meaning that that would be for the rest of their lives. This isn't just a presidential election. This would be, and they've gotten so used to, whether it's, uh, you know, Obergfell or, you know, just, just look at some of these major cases. Obviously, Roe v. Wade, some of the biggest battles of the culture war handed to the left by this progressive activist judiciary. They're not prepared to give that up. They're not prepared to accept that that's no longer going to be the reality. And so this whole Ginsburg situation, it, it's going to get, it's already getting a little tense. They think that she's going to bounce back and be totally fine. But the left is, you know, you saw how much they were willing to debase themselves, how much Democrats were willing to go to the gutter to try to stop Kavanaugh. And and the whole point of that was to destroy him and then make the, the, the consensus candidate would have become Merrick Garland, right? That would be, oh, just give us Merrick Garland, you know, and, and Republicans licking their wounds might have said, okay, fine, you know, Merrick Garland's not that bad. That was the plan. And Merrick Garland was going to be a, 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 you know, not a radical lib, but a trust, a, a, a trustworthy liberal ally on the court. No question about it. This time around, I don't even know. I don't even know what they're going to do if it comes up. I think there is a very real possibility that, uh, I mean, they were already marching in the streets. They were already trying to shut down the Capitol with protests and sit-ins. I mean, do you remember the shrieking before there were even the accusations of sexual misconduct that were bogus, the lies, the smear campaign against Kavanaugh, utter disgrace the Democrats made. By the way, people are saying Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris or ever say her name is going to be a front runner for Democrats. I'm not going to forget the role that she played. It was her office that leaked that memo or the letter rather about Kavanaugh and it was not an accident. And she was disgusting during the Kavanaugh hearing. Absolutely disgusting. I mean, all the Democrats were, but she was right there with them. But liberals are going to get very weird over this and then they're going to get very desperate. Uh, you know, there's only so much you can do when a woman is 85 and when anyone's 85 years old and strugg struggling to come back from cancerous growths on their lungs. Oh, in any normal position, in any other job in life, she would retire in any other job in life. But there's so much at stake here for the left, the progressive activist left, that we're supposed to pretend this is normal. This is completely abnormal. She should step down. There is no reason for her to continue in this way, in this role, except that the left insists that she stretch this out until the next administration. Well, this is again uh, an illustration of how much human rights have completely fallen off the agenda uh, of the Trump administration. It is simply not a priority and quite the contrary. 
Uh, this administration that commonly makes uh, common cause with autocrats all over the world uh, and ignores or downplays or diminishes the significance of any human rights violation. And we, of course, see that in the premeditated murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Just lots and lots of, of, of cheap shots here from Adam Schiff at the administration. I mean, when I say cheap shots, it's maybe not even the right description. Uh, it just falsehoods, smears. To say that the administration downplays human rights, um, this is now the left's favorite game, to, to point at any human rights violation with any major country around the world that we we have no choice but to interact with. Saudi Arabia, Russia, China. And to say that the administration doesn't care about it is unfair. It's just the administration, this administration, takes a different approach, which is not to pretend that we can or should even try to fix all of the human rights failings of other regimes around the world. That the best way to lead on this issue is to lead by example and to advance capitalism and rule of law and the prosperity and human dignity and decency that comes along with it. That's the best thing that we can do. Yeah, sure, that's it's words, but words only go so far. I would note that the words you actually hear from Pompeo, from the State Department, are right in line on those issues, on issues of human rights, with what you would have heard from any other administration. This is just all a narrative. Again, this is a, a construct that the left-wing media puts out there in consultation with their Democrat allies, and then they just stick to it. Doesn't matter what the facts are. Uh, you know, Schiff saying this stuff, and this was uh, this was in response to a Pompeo speech, which I'll give you a little taste of in a moment. I think Pompeo is doing a very good job, and and overall is one of the bright lights of the administration. I mean, I think that he's he's exceeded expectations up to this point. He's proven himself very capable and. And able to both work with the president and not in any way, uh, you know, get caught up in any of the palace intrigue that has beset this administration. But the Khashoggi thing, I just still can't get over this guy, Jamal Khashoggi. He's not even a U.S. permanent resident, not even a green card holder. This guy's just visiting here. He writes a column for The Washington Post. So what? That does not make him a green card holder. That does not make him a U.S. citizen. Now you could say, Buck, but what happened? Yeah, what happened to him is absolutely terrible. But terrible things happen in many countries all over the world on a regular basis. Now, not quite at the brazenness uh, and at the, the same level of barbarity that we saw from the Saudis in the Turkish, uh, or rather in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. But why is this our problem to solve and how do we think we're going to go about solving it? Are we going to demand the de facto head of a foreign state uh, subject himself to what? To Turkish justice? It's not it's not a U.S. person. The FBI has no jurisdiction. You'll notice how that that took a while to come out, by the way. There was a real uh, a real desire to to keep this under wraps. It shouldn't have been hard to figure out. It should not have taken time to know that this is not a U.S. person. And I'm sorry, but there is a difference. Our government has to prioritize Americans and people that are permanent residents of America, but citizens and permanent residents first. 
That's why, you know, you know, if, if we're going to go to war, you go to war for your own country. If you've got to pay taxes, you pay taxes to your own country. You know, there's an obligation to the state, and the state has an obligation to you. And that obligation supersedes what it has to just anybody anywhere around the world. But, you know, Schiff, who is really uh, moving up the ranks for the, the slimiest and just most disgraceful of Democrats, which is a... A special place to be, I, I will say. Um, Schiff here is being, well, I was going to say he's being disingenuous. I think that's the only thing he really knows how to do. Uh, to say that Trump is making common cause, what, common cause with Russia by, oh, I don't know, giving more weapons to the Ukraine than the Obama administration was willing to do? By putting more, by expelling uh, more Russians and putting more sanctions on Russians than any other administration has been willing to do in, in the post-Soviet era? You know, what? on what basis are we saying that he makes common cause with autocrats? Oh, because we don't want to set up a permanent forward operating base in Syria as a counterbalance to Iran. Think about the, th- think about the, the rationale here. Yeah, that's right. We need to set up a base in a country that we're not backing the actual government. We're hoping to form some kind of a political settlement that the government, which is still the Assad regime, the government will never accept. And we're hoping to counterbalance Iran by what? By being right next door? It, it just does not make sense. By We're going to have better visibility than what Iran's doing in Syria? I mean, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. And that then brings me to how I mean, the Obama administration was, and I used to debate this over at CNN. I used to debate generals and former intel directors and all kinds of folks at CNN all the time. I used to wipe the floor with them when they were trying to clean up after Obama. Because Obama was terrible on Mideast policy. Absolutely abysmal. Absolutely abysmal. Because he always came from this place of America's at fault for a lot of the mistakes here. Radical Islam is really just misunderstood and uh, Islamism, can't, we can work with it. It's not that bad. You know, o- Obama just had a very different approach, and it was a bad one. And that's why Schiff got a little testy today because Secretary of State Pompeo had the following to say about Obama's Mideast policies. Play 12. The age of self-inflicted American shame is over, and so are the policies that produce so much needless suffering. Now comes the real new beginning. In just 24 months... Actually, less than two years. The United States under President Trump has reasserted its traditional role as a force for good in this region. We've learned from our mistakes. We've rediscovered our voice. We've rebuilt our relationships. We've rejected false overtures from our enemies. And look at what we've accomplished. Look at what we've accomplished together under new leadership. America has confronted the ugly reality of radical Islamism. On President Trump's very first trip abroad to this region, he called on Muslim-majority nations to, quote, meet history's greatest test to conquer extremism and vanquish the forces of terrorism. Indeed. Clarity on who our enemies are in the Middle East. It's been a very useful thing for this administration and for this country. Got a big hour three coming up, team. Stay with me. 
You may be familiar with AARP. You or someone you know might already be a member, but did you know that the AARP stood against tax cuts for middle-class Americans and small business owners? You know, the AARP fought tooth and nail for a government-run healthcare system. That's why I think you should join an organization that reflects your values and gives you all the benefits of AARP. Join AMAC. Why AMAC? Well, AMAC is all about advocating for seniors, fixing Social Security, fixing our southern border. All of the different policies that you care about, they care about, and they're aligned with you. Plus, you get all kinds of the same benefits you get with AARP. Stand with AMAC today as they fight the good fight by becoming a member. The benefits are great, but the cause is even greater. Tell your family, tell your friends. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. AMAC is better for you, better for America. New Yorkers need a break. New Yorkers need a break. Do you need a break? Yes. Do you work hard? Yes. If you work hard and you don't get a break, that's not fair. For the first time, we will be the first city or state in this nation to guaranteed, guarantee all workers two weeks paid vacation. Kaiser Wilhelm de Blasio has new pronouncements for you. He would like you to understand that you'll get two weeks of vacation. It is verboten to make you work during those two weeks. As you know, Bill de Blasio, formerly Warren Wilhelm, a.k.a. Kaiser Wilhelm, is a far-left progressive, close ally of, a, or formerly, I think, a close ally of Hillary Clinton. I think they had a falling out. He was like, Hillary, you have to stop wearing the pantsuits. It's just not fashionable. And now he has gone from saying that there'll be health care for all New Yorkers to a $15 minimum wage. And, uh, you know, this is, oh, wait, I'm sorry, we already have a $15 minimum wage in the state of New York. This is getting crazy. But now we're going to get two uh, two weeks of vacation. Now, let, let me say that that does not, to me, sound unreasonable at all. I would think that most employers would want to be able to give their employees two weeks of vacation. Uh, I would also note that I haven't had the ability to take a full two weeks of vacation in almost, I mean, I, I at least eight years. I can't remember taking two weeks of actual vacation uh, meaning two weeks of not. Now, they may say, well, Buck, it's not taking it contiguously, and I can understand that, but the point here is that you've got to do what the needs of the employer are to keep your job. And they, deciding for all these people, deciding for these small businesses in particular, that people are going to get two weeks of what is a benefit that the, the employer can, or up to this point, could not offer, uh, is going to have problems here. This is going to be issues. Here's what they say. New Yorkers need a break, de Blasio is talking about. They include 180, uh, sorry, 500,000 private sector employees who get no paid time off. They include 180,000 workers in professional services, 90,000 in retail, 200,000 in hotels. Uh, fast food pretty much across the board, non-union hotel workers, et cetera, et cetera. So now if you work at McDonald's in New York, you're going to get a mandatory two weeks of a vacation time, this is going to result in changes to the bottom line of these businesses. 
And if you are a business, particularly a restaurant, uh, many of the small businesses in New York, where you have a staff of four, five people, seven people, for someone to be able to take off two weeks, uh, it can be a pretty major burden. I mean, I know small business owners who basically never take a day off because they know that any day that they're not there, the business does not really run properly. Now, keep in mind, everyone's getting Saturday and Sundays off, right? So we're talking about days off. I'm not including Christmas, you know, New Year's Eve and and weekends. Obviously, people have to get some days off. But in terms of vacation days, some jobs, it's very, it's very tough to take those vacation days. Uh, I know people who work in a whole range of industries where taking more than a day or two off is very difficult. Point here is that if you're not going to leave this to the market, there are going to be costs associated with this that someone like de Blasio is not taking into account. Now that small business is going to have to hire somebody additionally, perhaps, to cover as a result of this new mandate, which means that that's money that comes out of the bottom line of that business. And a lot of small business owners are operating at a very small profit margin to begin with. Perhaps they're even op- operating just just barely at break even. And now you're just you're going to mandate that they have to do this. Look, it's not on its own. I don't think this is going to uh, be a a huge, you know, a catastrophe. But de Blasio all of a sudden has got into the uh, news cycle a lot because he's pushing for these very, very progressive policies. And, And I think that New Yorkers are about to find out, unfortunately, just what it means to have somebody who looks at what's going on in San Francisco, look what's going on in L.A., uh, and and says to themselves, yeah, I think we could have a poop patrol here too. Sounds great. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that taking the progressive failures of places like San Francisco and Los Angeles from a governance standard and then trying to duplicate them in New York City is wise at all. And, you know, New York is in many ways, a a gem of a place. I know that now I sound like I work for the New York Tourism Board, but for a city of its size and dynamism and to have so many people, 8 million people living together, it's remarkably uh, safe now. It wasn't always, but it's remarkably safe. Uh, I I, I am much more cognizant of personal safety issues in Washington, D.C. D.C. is just a much more dangerous city. It just is. Um, and New York, New York is very safe. The food scene is the best in the world. And, you know, you, you just, just go down the list. I mean, there's a lot of every business, every opportunity, whatever you need, whatever you want, it's in New York, except for beautiful beaches and uh, year-round great weather. We don't have that. You know, we don't have those things. But uh, I still refer to it as we. See, I still think, I think of myself as a New Yorker. But even those you don't give a, don't give a hoot what happens to NYC— de Blasio is going to show you that even a place that has had as good of a run as New York with as much uh, economic growth and and wealth creation and uh, it's it's easy for for a lib to come in and destroy it libs destroy cities it's unfortunate but true look at major cities around the country look at the dysfunction in those cities it has been liberal democrats running them for as long as i've been alive all over the place. And many cities are in decline as a result of it, right? I mean, these things, it's hard to break a city all at once. It's hard to do something so stupid that you ruin a city right away. It takes time. But I think de Blasio is going to show us just what 
a truly persistent, progressive idiocy can do to a great metropolitan area like New York. So we will have to see. Uh, you know, I also had a chance today to speak to a union representative for the L.A. public school system. What I thought was so interesting was she, she uh, the, the, whenever, whenever I speak to union representatives for the schools, it's all so classic. It's just about, it's all about the kids. It's just about kids and funding for kids and investing. That's the word. They use these very clearly uh, chosen for the effect they have words when they really mean something else. They mean pay more. They mean more taxing of people who are property owners to put more money into a school system that's already incredibly expensive, very inefficient and failing. But they'll say it's just about investing in our kids, investing in our kids. And the language they use is designed to distract from the fact that most of these school systems, these major urban school systems in this country, including in New York, are overwhelmingly focused on hiring um, administrators, administrative staff instead of actual teachers. That's where that's where a vast majority of the growth in major urban public school systems has been across the country. They're hiring people to teach English as a second language. They're hiring people to teach, you know, all these different things that are, they're not, uh, you know, they're, they're hiring bureaucrats who are in offices who process the paperwork of other bureaucrats in the, in the school system. They hire superintendents and pay them, you know, 150 grand. Uh, you know, that's, that's what you see in a lot of these school systems. It's just a giant jobs program all tied into the Democrat Party. And that's why the teachers unions are so progressive and and so very, very uh, left wing. And they're about to go on strike next week. I think 35,000 of them are planning to go on strike in Los Angeles. And I was asking this National Federation of Teachers person today, what's the, this is Los Angeles. I mean, you're telling me that they're, they're not favorable enough toward teachers? Oh, first thing she says to me, first thing is, there's there's all this money being siphoned off to charter schools. And what I want to say, and I brought up, I said, so isn't that parents? You're talking about investing. Isn't that parents saying they want to invest differently in their children? They're, whenever you hear union bosses for these public sector unions in any of these cities, whenever you hear a liberal mayor talk about investing in our kids, what they mean is we're going to tax the productive people more to give more money to people who don't really do very much and work for city government. That's really what they're saying, although they'll never put it in those terms. It just makes me sad that de Blasio is uh, going to do all these things that are going to really hurt New York uh, over the long run. And uh, L.A., eh. We'll see what happens out there. I don't know. The, I don't know the scene out in L.A. quite as well, but we've got more coming up here, team. Stay with me. You don't have to be stuck with these liberal dominated email services that sell your information, scan your inbox and uh, whatever money they're making is going toward causes that you don't agree with. Check out iPatriots.us. iPatriots.us is a conservative alternative to all those lib email services out there iPatriots.us is secure and private, includes more of what you want without all the ads and spam. You get 30 gigs of cloud storage, larger attachment sizes, a whole bunch more. Your email and files are safe with iPatriots premium antivirus 256-bit encryption, and they're not going to sell your information or support liberal agenda items, okay? Show you're a patriot. 
Go to iPatriots.us now. Choose your membership program and input your desired iPatriots email address during checkout. Make sure you enter promo code BUCK, that's B-U-C-K, for 10% savings during your first year of membership at iPatriots.us. Team, switching gears here for a moment, I want to ask the question, is there a rise in anti-Semitism coming from the left? Well, our friend Rahim Kassam joins now to address this question for us. He is, of course, the author of No Go Zones, a fantastic book you should check out. And he's also uh, writing constantly, including at RahimKassam.com. Rahim, the dream. What's up, my man? <laughs> How's it going, Buck? So where are you seeing this rise in anti-Semitism, specifically on the left? Well, yeah, look, I mean, so a couple of years ago, you had a situation in the United Kingdom where Jeremy Corbyn, who is a far-left, almost communist sympathizer, um, I mean, literally marches alongside hammer and sickle flags, was elected the leader of the Labour Party. And since then, you've had occasion after occasion of very, very serious uh, incidents of anti-Semitism, Jew hatred, uh, to to, uh, put a finer point on it, from within the the Labour Party, the political left in the United Kingdom, so much so that the party itself had to have a full internal investigation. Well, since these last midterm elections in the United States, I believe we're now seeing elected members of the Democrat Party of America uh, who show those same inclinations towards Jew hatred as the Labour Party in the United Kingdom. And I'll give you some examples of that. Rashida Tlaib, this new uh, congresswoman, who uh, is probably most famous right now for that video uh, where she said we're going to impeach the mother effer uh, about President Trump, um, she accused members of Congress of having dual loyalties between the United States and Israel. And the dual loyalty trope is a very famous anti-Semitic trope um, that, that implies that uh, a Jewish person cannot be an American uh, through and through, that they will always have this uh, uh, underlying uh, um, you know, affinity and allegiance to Israel over the United States or over any other country. Uh, that they might be citizens of. You also have the Los Angeles Times uh, running articles that say things like, uh, and the, he- the headline of it even, was, can you support an anti-Semite like Louis Farrakhan and support the progressive women's march? And their answer to the question that they posed themselves was maybe it's complicated. So you're starting already to see the, the roots of this uh, um, what is really a, a philosophical disease um, being planted in the United States, um, it's, been, it's been sort of a little bit of time that they've been trying to do this with Linda Sarsour, of course, famously uh, uh, anti-Semitic, famously uh, uh, very, very uh, aggressive towards uh, non-Muslims and former Muslims especially, uh, who, was, who was one of the co-chairs of the Women's March, which is coming up, and so now uh, I thought it was about time uh, we shed some real light on what's going on uh, on the political left because for, for so many years now we've heard about the right and the alt-right and the nationalists being anti-Semitic. It turns out, as far as I can analyze, that it's been projection from the left all along. 
Why is it that you uh, see, in in your opinion, Raheem, why do you see that uh, there is this particular strain of anti-Semitism that finds uh, a home in left-wing politics, right? Because the left is, you know, in America, and I would assume in the UK, though you'd know a lot more about it than me, uh, is, is obsessed with identity politics. And yet, in this instance, all of a sudden, uh, Jews who have been not just persecuted in modern history, but persecuted really for all of known human history, uh, all of a sudden are, are outside of that protected, on, you know, with some elements of the left, obviously not all of it, but f- find themselves outside of that protected category status. Just philosophically, why does the yeah. left find itself or, or put itself rather in that position? How does that happen? It's a, it's a really difficult um, subject to broach because it's it's filled with sensitivity. So so I say this with with you know no malice intended towards anyone. It's, it's, a, it's a take a step back and analyze kind of kind of way to look at things. It's it's the left isn't so much about identity politics, but it's about victimhood politics. Now Jewish people don't tend to uh, have or need victimhood status. Uh, as much as the left would like. It's the same thing with Asians in America as well, actually. You don't really see the left uh, riding to the rescue of Asians, say, in Hollywood. Asians are massively underrepresented in Hollywood, but you never see that being said by the political left because Asians tend to be uh, in the higher percentage of uh, average income in the United States, the same uh, with Jewish people. So it's more about, you know, whether or not someone can be classed as a victim and therefore leveraged for victimhood politics for the left. So that's why I think, uh, you know, white people, uh, Jews, Asians, and to some extent, uh, uh, Indians from from, uh, South Asia don't necessarily find themselves the the, uh, target of, um, of, of left-wing hugs. You know, they don't really hold these people very close. And when you don't hold someone close like that, an identity group close like that, and there is a counter-identity group that just so happens to have a big problem with the other one, so here I'm talking about Muslims who typically uh, emigrate into the West with uh, ingrained anti-Semitic ideas and values, uh, then that causes attention. And that's what the left, I think, is picking up. It certainly picked it up in the United Kingdom, where you have the leader of the Labour Party marching on uh, uh, annually a day called Al-Quds Day, where they march with Hezbollah flags down Westminster and Whitehall and through the centre of London. Uh, And again, you're starting to see that here in the United States, too. It's not a surprise, and it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone over the next few months and years, uh, when they see Linda Sarsour and Louis Farrakhan marching alongside with the with the Democratic, uh, uh, you know, leaders. So watch out for it, basically. Raheem, are you going to be writing on this? Where can we find your stuff? Yeah, so actually I just did a, I just did a little rant uh, today about it on my Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Raheem Kassam. And yes, I will be writing about it in the next few days. But as you can tell from, from how I'm... Um, uh, putting it across in, in words right now, there's still a lot of unpacking to do around this because so much of it is still beneath the surface. So we're looking at, uh, I mean, there's a couple of people working on it alongside me at the moment. So we are really looking into getting down to the nitty gritty of where this is coming from and who's behind all of it. Check out Raheem's Patreon page, everybody, and uh, follow him on Twitter at Raheem Kassam. Raheem, thank you so much, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, bud. Always a pleasure. All right, team. There is 
more show coming your way in uh, in just a moment. I'm going to get into a roll call. Probably going to talk a little bit about climate change first, though, because there's a new climate change threat out there. Oh, no, the oceans. Get ready for it. Oh, my gosh, we're all going to die, folks, unless we do something about climate change, right? Doesn't that get you all scared for a moment? Isn't it terrifying just to hear the words climate change? The same people that are telling you that there's no crisis at the border, there's drug smuggling, murders, rapes, illegal crossings, I mean, all, all kinds, you know, riots, mayhem, all kinds of bad stuff. No crisis at the border. They think that you and I are absurd for not believing that there is a crisis of climate change. And now we have the latest entrant into the climate change hysteria sweepstakes. This one courtesy of the New York Times. Ocean warming is accelerating faster than thought. New research finds. So here's what this, uh, here's what, let me just give you some of the details. And then I'll get into why this is almost, almost hilarious in how ridiculous it is. It starts off, scientists say the world's oceans are warming far more quickly than previously thought, a finding with dire implications for climate change because almost all the excess heat absorbed by the planet ends up stored in their waters. A new analysis just published Thursday in the journal Science found the oceans are heating up 40% faster on average than a United Nations panel estimated five years ago. The researchers also concluded that ocean temperatures have broken records for several straight years. 2018 is going to be the warmest year on record for the Earth's oceans, according to Zeke Hausfather, an energy systems analyst at the independent climate research group, Berkeley Earth. Yeah, that sounds really independent to me, right? Yeah, man, it's like Berkeley Earth. Like, we're just about saving the planet, green energy, green revolution, but like, we have no politics, man. These people are nuts. Absolutely nuts but here's the problem with this you got to read down the piece a little bit quote historically understanding ocean temperatures has been difficult an authoritative un report issued in 2014 issued in 2014 by the un presented five different estimates of ocean heat huh but they all showed less warming than the levels projected by computer climate models showed. Huh. That means that somebody's got to be wrong, right? Since the early 2000s, they've been measuring them in different ways, uh, including use of the Argo, named after Jason's ship in Greek mythology. It floats something around in the ocean. But before Argo, researchers relied on expendable bathythermographs, which is a sort of sensor. Um... But as it turned out, the downward revision brought that study's estimates much closer to the new consensus. The correction made a degree, blah, 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 blah. More errors, more errors. Essentially, they have yet to be able in the last 20 years to credibly measure ocean temperature. But now there's a new, a new analysis out there. And <gasps> shock, a bunch of researchers who rely on attention and research grants for their livelihood, for their work, and for their day-to-day -day lives to have purpose, they have figured out a way to crunch the numbers such that the warming is much worse than initially thought. I, I got I got news for you. They they can't 
adequately measure ocean temperature. They, they do not have a way of doing it. They just don't. They just don't. I'm not making it up. You go through their history the last 10 years, they keep getting it wrong. And getting it wrong by a degree or two means that the rest of it is meaningless because we're only talking about a degree or two of warming. So if you're off by a degree and you're saying that a one degree increase is going to be catastrophic or a two degree increase is going to be catastrophic, then guess what? Your research method is bunk. It is crap. It is garbage. It has no meaning. You don't need to be a scientist to know this. You just have to not be an idiot. Man, there are a lot of people that abandon common sense because this is a fashionable hysteria right now. Just like Russia collusion, climate change, the fashionable hysteria for the hashtag science crowd. Not actual science, hashtag science. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. We made ours go up to 11. It's time for roll call. Roll call time is your favorite time, team, because when I get to hear from all of you across the country and uh, pick through your insights, your recommendations, your edits, commentary, all the rest of it. Joe kicks us off. Enough with soft butter and warm toast. <laughs> what happened to the dubstep and funky beats roll call intros? Shields high, team, from Joe. Hey, DJ John, what happened to our what happened to dubstep, buddy? You keeping that one, you know, keeping that one up? Ooh. I can feel the glow sticks between hey, my fingers. Team right Buck, now. it's time for roll call. There we go, Chuck. Thank you. I like that one, too. That's a fun one. We should do some new roll calls for the new year. We are working on new music for the new year. Some of you may have seen we have new artwork up for the podcast. So now you can actually see who this Buck Sexton guy is when you download the podcast. That was a this is what we call a a branding improvement. So uh, we got we've got things underway. Faux show. Um, yeah. Dub, dubstep, I feel like it's not as much of a thing anymore, although uh Electronic music in different forms keeps coming back. It, it will always keep coming back because, I don't know, something very, very catchy about it. Uh, Julian writes, hey, Buck, why doesn't Trump televise his meetings with Schumer and Pelosi? That way they can't lie about what happened and Americans can, uh, America can see how disingenuous they are about securing the border. He's better off the cuff than they are, and he can call it transparency. You know, Julian, I... I I agree with you. I think that the more that Trump can force Pelosi and Schumer to have to make their case out in the open, the more it is apparent that Pelosi, Schumer and the Democrats don't actually have real arguments here, that effectively what they what they do is a repetition of emotionally resonant talking points that don't address the issue of border security. Uh, that do not tell us what would actually work. They just want to tell us 
how sad it is that Trump is such a racist or how the Republicans are so evil or, you know, whatever, whatever such nonsense comes across their radar on any given day. Uh, but I, I, I liked it very much when Trump had Pelosi and Schumer in the Oval Office and was, you know, holding them, uh, holding their feet to the fire a little bit. You can tell they didn't like that. You know, they've been hiding the Democrat Party, the progressive left. They have been hiding behind lies and and boilerplate phrases that are meaningless. America is a nation of immigrants, stuff like that. Meaningless. Immigrants do the jobs Americans won't do. Well, we're talking about illegal immigrants here. And even when you drill a little further into these phrases, you can see that they don't they don't tell us anything about the problems we're trying to address. So that's uh, that's one thing that I think we should all keep in mind. Thomas. So I got that going for me, which is nice. Thomas writes, I'm in Virginia now, but I spent 13 years in San Diego. If you have not been, go to Old Town. Great Mexican food and amazing margaritas. Well, Thomas, I will be in SD next week. At least that's the plan. I've gotten uh, the all clear to head out uh, to the San Diego sector of the border, see what's going on with that caravan, and and spend some time with the Border Patrol at a, at, a, at a senior level to do interviews and find out what the heck is really going on out there. So Buck is hitting the road next week in San Diego. Uh, if you are Team Buck and you feel like buying me a salted margarita, perhaps on the beaches of La Jolla, uh, you know, reach out on Facebook. Yeah, I might, I'll be out there with my crew and, uh, you know, I'll be around. So maybe we could all hang out. Uh, Mesa, cool name. That's Hey Buck. Happy New Year. Glad to have you back. For the first time ever, I called my congressman. I left a message encouraging them to support the president in his effort to build the wall. Do you believe that calling and leaving these messages are effective? P.S. The Elizabeth Warren commercial was so cringeworthy, but your impression of her was hilarious. Shields high. I'm going to get me a beer. Oh, man. Elizabeth Warren. I, I hope for the Democrats in, you know, in contradiction to all good sense and wisdom. I hope that the Democrats uh, decide that they are going to have Elizabeth Warren be their person going forward. I, I hope that the Democrats are foolish enough to rally behind Elizabeth Warren. I think it's a real possibility. You know, I think it's a real possibility. Um, and as to calling congressmen, you know, there's so many things in life where you can't tell what the immediate impact is, but but you got to try. And I think that's kind of where I'd put the whole calling your congressman thing. Can I promise you that it's going to make a difference? Of course not. But is it possible that it will make a difference? And is it worth trying does it cost you anything to try that's really how i would i would gauge it if, if i were you uh marcy writes walk this way for aerosmith rap before there was rap marcy it was an innovative song but i don't i don't particularly love the song it's a good song don't get me wrong i mean aerosmith has a lot of excellent songs i just don't think aerosmith has any truly great songs which is a controversial opinion i know and if you look at the greatest rock band of the last 30 years so now we're not including rolling stones and bands that really had their time more in this in the 70s um and into the 80s i guess 
I know that I, I know that you still have the Rolling Stones. I mean, those guys are coming out on ventilators and being scooted around on scooters, rascals, all that. Uh, some of you still think the Rolling Stones are every bit as amazing as they used to be. That's fine. Nostalgia is fun. I agree. Uh, but if, I think you can make a case that the greatest American rock band of the last 30 years is probably Aerosmith. American rock bands. You're cutting out because all these great bands that you think of are British. I mean, the Brits have turned out a surprising number of the greatest rock bands of all time. Uh, obviously, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin. The Beatles are kind of pop rock. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't really know how you how you can uh, quantify the Beatles, but nonetheless. Uh, Nenpan writes, Hi, Buck. I love the show and your astute analysis. I also really like the songs and themes played during the show. I have shazam the songs with no luck. Can you share your show's playlist? Uh, Nenpan, uh, first of all, cool name. And I'm a guy who can appreciate a, a cool name. And second of all, I just say I'd be happy to share the playlist, except I don't really know. Um, it's not music that we it's music that's kind of within the industry that you license. It's not music that you can find on on playlists. So I don't really know how we would how we would do that. Um, John, there's no there, you know, you, you've got to pay for the license to access that music. Right. So, yeah, you have to pay for the copyrights for them. So there's no place where I can give them to you because you can only, we, we only, there's no distribution mechanism for them. Like they don't exist on iTunes is what I'm trying to say. Uh, you'd have to be a, you have to pay for this uh, suite of music. Anyway, I'm getting a little deeper into it, but the answer is I would love to help you out in Pan, but I don't even know how we would do that, but I'm glad you like the music and we got some new, new music on the way. Dan writes, best song of the 80s. Look, man, love the show, but come on, guys. Best song of the 80s was ACDC, You Shook Me All Night Long, Van Halen Jump or Panama, or Guns N' Roses, Paradise City are all better choices. Dan, I got to throw a fake news flag on you here, buddy. A Sweet Child of Mine is just a better song than Paradise City. Paradise City is a great song. Don't get me wrong. But Sweet Child of Mine, I think, is, is a better overall song. And ACDC, I like Back in Black more than Shook Me All Night Long. Van Halen, yeah, Jump is Van Halen's best song. There's no no question. I still don't know why we, you, you didn't throw Def Leppard, Pour Some Sugar on me in this list, though. If we're really going for the greatest rock songs of the 80s, I, I think that has to make any top 10 list. So I'm just, just putting that out there for you. Jason writes, Buck, why doesn't the GOP introduce a spending bill that will fund the payment of all government employees? Take away the biggest stick the Democrats have. And if they refuse to pass it alongside the GOP, then who is at fault for no pay for those government employees? Well, Jason, that's I, I think I see what you're what you're saying here, but that's kind of where we are right now. I mean, the GOP has said, if you just give us the wall funding, we'll pay all these. We'll make sure that the money gets through for all these employees right now. And the government shut down. And this is all about pressure and focusing our attention at the national level on it. So, you know, I think that's kind of where we are, my friend. Ryan writes, hey, Buck, great show. Well, Ryan, great choice in shows. Back during your Blaze days, I remember Glenn Beck mentioning a film sitting on Netflix called Look Who's Back. Beck liked it, I imagine, because it appealed to the never Trump kick he was on at the time. But it's a German foreign film about Hitler coming back in a modern Germany. 
He blinks, dusts himself off, wanders around Berlin until he finds a newspaper stand. That's all you need, isn't it? Just ask Putin. He read one and said, okay, I can work with this. Interesting film for the Germans to cook up. I liked it. I've never heard of it, uh, Ryan, so I have to take your word for it. And, you know, I, I have two German foreign language films that I can recommend to you. One of them is probably in my top 10 movies of all time, which is uh, Das Leben der Anderen, The Lives of Others. The Lives of Others is incredible. It's about East Germany, behind the wall, behind the Iron Curtain. It's just really good. If you haven't seen it, see it. It's just a very, very good movie. Uh, the other one is Downfall, which is about the last days of the Third Reich. And essentially, it's made to feel almost like a documentary of Hitler's last days in the bunker when they realize that uh, they're going to lose. So I can highly, both of those, the guy who plays Hitler in that movie is shockingly good. I mean, he is, he is spooky, scary good at being Hitler. And the fact that the movie's in German just makes the whole thing that much more authentic. Uh, Team, that's our show for today, but I am excited to talk to you tomorrow. Please make sure you uh, share the podcast. I'm going to put it out on, on Twitter and on Facebook. Got a new look to that podcast. You can pass it around to friends. Talk to you tomorrow. Shields high. Hiring can be pretty tough, okay? It can be pretty time-consuming. You post a job to several online boards only to get tons of the wrong resumes. Then you have to sort through all of those resumes just to find a few people with the right skills and experience. Those job sites that overwhelm you with the wrong resumes, they're not smart. That's why you should do the smart thing and go to ZipRecruiter.com buck. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com buck. If you lo- love this show, show your support for it. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck to find the best people. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.